Welcome to Conversations About Aging. I'm Diane Atwood and I'm traveling throughout the state of Maine talking to people who are 60 and older about their perspectives on aging. And right now I am sitting with Bill Saltzer who is, you just told me, tell me again, how old are you? 93 years old, 93. Can you believe it? Oh, well, I guess I have to, <laughs> there it is. I'll be 94 in November but I came into assisted living here in, in Gorham back in December of this, well, December of last year, when I had a move, I moved out of, I lived in Dayton for about 25 years, so that's not that far away, but it, it, I was, my, the wife died, so I was by myself, which meant I gotta do the cooking and the, and the shopping and uh, all of that, everything. And it got to the point where after a couple more heavy snowstorms, I fell down on the, the porch there and hurt my back. And I said, well, that's it. And my kids have been after me to get out of there, you know, you get in the assisted living place. So my daughter, uh, Patty, who lives in New Hampshire, we get together frequently and we went around and I found this place and I was happy with the situation here because it's a smaller place like 39 or whatever people residents and they're not doing a lot of construction and they're not adding to the place not building it out like so many other places I see so and it's nice and quiet off in the woods nobody even knows you're here so this is why I'm here primarily so I couldn't help but notice that you do not have a Maine accent. You've got a New Jersey accent. Oh, yes. Well, after I got out of the service, I went to Boston University, and I've been in New England ever, ever since, working for Raytheon Company in procurement and contracting work. Got my law degree, and I was admitted to the bar in Massachusetts. I didn't work for the law department in Raytheon, but I did procurement, did a lot of negotiation with some of your bigger companies like the Patriot Missile and, and, and big programs like that. I spent a lot of time in, well, no, in Rhode Island. I was very happy down there with the submarine signal division where we did a lot of submarine work. And uh, that was interesting. I've worked in Massachusetts and I've worked in Rhode Island and I've worked in Maine. And you liked Maine the best? You chose to retire in Maine? Yes, I did, because as I said, well, I was living in Maine for a good many years since, well, 1990, when I retired. The wife had retired too, so we were both living there at, at my double-wide home in, in Dayton. And, and she passed away in 07, I think it was. She got pretty sick, and uh, so then I was all by myself. The kids were after me to get do something, get out of there, and you know, because they were concerned about my health and about falling or getting hurt, which is what happened with a snowstorm. So I hurt my back, and so here I am. Here you are. <laughs> well, I want to talk about the here and now, but first I want to go back to the beginning a little bit. Yeah. So you were born and raised in New Jersey, Correct. in Orange County, I think you told well, me. Orange Memorial Hospital. I don't know what I forget what county it may be now. Okay. Essex County. It's Essex County. It was the same hospital. <laughs> My grandfather died in, uh, 12 years earlier. When he came into New Jersey, my grandfather, he got a job at the hat factory 
in Orange, I believe. As a matter of fact, <laughs> the name of the place, No Name Hat Company. It turned out they were related to the Stetsons, who later on moved down to course the Philadelphia area. But, uh, and he was killed, a, a trolley car came in, hit him, and that's why he ended up in Orange Hospital. The doctor, this apparent heart attack was his medical decision. As opposed to got struck by a trolley car. He, he never got into it. He didn't want to get involved, I'm sure. Insurance reasons, whatever reasons. And he just wrote on there, apparent heart attack. And that's the way he wrote the medical sign off on, on, on the death certificate. But that had ramifications for your grandmother because if well, there had been insurance. Well, as it turns out, he was a member of the union. So there was some money from the union. And I think this is basically how she got out of Newark and moved into Irvington, which is what I consider my hometown, Irvington, New Jersey. And so lived, as I say, a number of years there until uh, uh, when I went, went into the service from Irvington. Okay, so you grew up in Irvington, New Jersey. Correct. And when you graduated from high school, you went right into the Marines? Correct. What year was that and what did 43. you do? 43. Uh, well, 1943 when I graduated from from high school, and then uh, I tried to get in earlier, but I wasn't 18 yet, and they, so I had to wait till I was 18. I turned 18 in November, so in December I joined the Marine Corps, and I was in boot camp in December of 43. Why did you want to join the Marines? I have an uncle who was in the Marines in World War One. I knew about that, and we used to talk about that, because I remember he had a great big picture of himself. In typical, he was served in France during World War One. It just it had to be the Marine Corps, and I was, I think, kind of lucky in the sense that, because I wasn't a great big John Wayne type, I did get in, because I ended up with the Marines in 43 in, in, in Paris Island boot camp, and then we went to New River, and then ended up in going to California, and then I was in three combat missions in Saipan, Tinian, and Okinawa. Saipan became the second division headquarters. This is the division I was in. We were getting ready to invade Japan when they dropped the atomic bombs and in Hiroshima and then Nagasaki. Well, then, of course, the war ended. They had the big ceremony on the Missouri where they all surrendered and all that business. About a month later, we went to Japan, the second division. We landed in Nagasaki. I was in Nagasaki about a month after the A-bomb was dropped. So I spent about a couple of months in Nagasaki. And then when MacArthur <laughs> took over Japan, became, quote, the emperor himself, and we, we were all moved down to the down to Kanoya, which was the far south end of the island of Kyushu. I ended up being taken, there was about 18 or 20 of us. One, I was a high school graduate, and apparently I got some pretty good marks on my, some of these tests I took. Anyway, they came down and got a hold of me and sent me to a Japanese language school in, on Saipan to be interpreters. Nothing official and you didn't get promoted, you didn't get anything. Because I was a PFC and that's where I stayed forever. Then we went to Okinawa, landing in Okinawa there in April, April 1st. 
45, yeah. So by now you're 20 years old by now. Yeah. You're, you're well, much older and wiser. Well, I don't know about wiser, but older. And of course, I turned 20 in Japan while I was on occupation duty in Japan. So as I say, I spent like six months in Japan, pretty much an independent type because I was an interpreter and they put me with different groups just to work with different people. Because a big job we had uh, in, on, on Kyushu was the Japanese had turned in uh, surrender documents, listing all the weapons they had. So we had to go out and check and, and see. And in a lot of places they had all kinds of ammunition out in a, like a, in a Japanese high school yard. And then we found a big cave right in Sasebo where they had all kinds of the bombs that they were using from the, the, the Kanoya Air Force was using these kind of bombs for attacking the American ships off Okinawa. So they had a cave full of those and we you know, had a group of us, a lieutenant and a small group. They sent up there and said, what the heck, what are we going to do with these? Yeah, they said, well, we're going to have to take them out of here somehow or other. Well, we didn't have the equipment. We did it on a, with a jeep, put the big bombs on on a running board or, so, or on, on the, the front end of it and they haul them out and then drop them in the ocean. Huh. So we did that quite a bit and they, they realized that we had a pretty big bunch and we'd be there forever. We found out there was many more in there. They, they never listed these on any of the surrender documents we had. So we were not sure. And well, they decided the way of getting rid of them, pouring a lot of airplane gasoline that we took from the, the Japanese had for their air force. And we just poured it in there and lit it up and blew up whatever we could. That must have been quite spectacular. It certainly was. The, the people, the little town right below, because this was up on a hill where Kanoya had their landing fields and they had the cliff and then the small town of, so I'll say, Bo, is it now? I'm trying to remember the name of the town because they, they made great sochu, which was their rice, not rice whiskey, sweet potato whiskey. And <laughs> Because they got to know me as Sarusa-san, and they come around, they bring their big bottles of, of the sochu, and, and they said, it was a gift, and they, all they wanted was the bottle back. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had, it was interesting. I was in, in that little town for about two months, found it very interesting. Eh, little things like that. What kind of a welcome did you get when you came back from the service? Well, don't forget now, the war is over for six months. I come back, you would think there was no war. We had no big parade, no big hullabaloo, because I remember getting discharged, given 20-some bucks or whatever it was to get back to Jersey, Penn Station in New York, and I, had, and I took the bus from there to get back home. My mother happened to be sick at that time for some reason. My father was all excited to see me. We were never very close as, as a father-son because that's the way we were. I think it was the only, the biggest hug I ever got from my father when I got back from the service. Because that was a surprise because they know I was coming but they weren't sure when. You know, I just showed up. Hello, I'm home. <laughs> How about that? Isn't that nice? So you came back from the war 
you hung out for a couple of years. Yep. You enjoyed life. Yep. And then what made you decide to take your next step? Well, I was a high school graduate, you know, big deal then. I said, I got to go to college somehow or other. I didn't know how I was going to do that. Because uh, in Irvington, not too far, you, Sacred Heart had a school in, in South Orange that I was looking at. Somehow or other, I bumped him with a fellow that I knew. He, was, he had gone to Boston University. He said, why don't you go up there? I said, yeah, why not? So I went up there and uh, fortunately, of course, I had to take a couple of address exams and whatever, and I got in. You were pretty smart. You said that you got good grades in high school. Yeah. So all I'm guessing, well, they were bringing in students like crazy because this was, you know, 1949 now, I guess, yeah. So they were bringing in students like crazy. Boston University wasn't, was not Harvard, it was not Yale, and it was, they were struggling. So they're bringing, because I, I started school in a building that used to be the Harvard Medical School. Because <laughs> I can remember sitting in there where, because they'd have the sink and they'd have a big, where the, you look at pictures, old pictures, and uh, uh, the guy sitting in these racks going up to this, watch the operations on the tables. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a, it was a strange place, and we were pretty well packed in. We just went to school and had all kinds of people. It was a general college, and I finished there, and then I was, luckily, I signed up to go to the law school, which I was able to transfer right on over, staying in BU at the law school, right from the, the college, the general college, I think they called it at the time. So, because for two years, then I went into the law school for the, the three years. So I got my degree, two degrees, you know, uh, when I finished law school. What was your degree or what was your major before law school? Uh, we didn't, didn't really have majors. I look back at it and I, I think it was pretty good. Some of the courses were good. I guess I came out with an associate's degree. AA degree. When I got out of that two-year course, went into law school. Because then, then after I graduated law school, eventually it ended up as had the Doctor of Laws as, as the final degree. Your family must have been really proud of you. Oh, they were. My mother and my uncle and aunt came up to the graduation. My father, no. Anyway. They came up to the graduation, and that was very nice. We got the cap and the gown and the whole business. And, uh, but so, it's always, my father and I, you know, well, we were just two different types. And we were not close, for whatever reason. Well, I was close, very close to my mother. So that, here you are, at your age, it still bothers you, I think, about your dad. Yeah. You're a different personality than your dad. Yeah, very much so. Um, but did you also, when you had your own kids, were you conscious of, I don't want to be like my dad was with me, with my yes, kids? Yes, right, because I had four children, and we're all very close. All of your four children were from your first marriage. Correct. We have Maureen, William, Patricia, Thomas. And you have a great relationship with all four of those oh, yeah. kids. That's wonderful. We, oh, yeah.
Bill has a great relationship with all of his children, but he doesn't get to see them as much as he used to, and that makes him feel sad, which we do talk about. As he mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, up until the end of 2018, Bill lived alone in the house he shared with his second wife, Lorraine, who passed away in 2007. He managed to take care of things. That includes himself, the house, and the outside. But as the years passed, it became more difficult, especially in winter. So at what age do you think you recognize that, wow, this is a lot of work? Well, I was finding it. Uh, I know better, but I was finding it. They, the kids were after me to get out of there and get into assisted living someplace. Around Thanksgiving, when I was shoveling again, and I fell down, hurt my back. I had a hell of a time crawling, just crawling. We had quite a ramp to get up and get out of there. So I said, well, that's it. Now I got to got to make the move whether I want to or not. So for a couple of years, I'm guessing they were kind of nagging at they, you. They were after me to to do something about it because they could see. Well, I was healthy enough and doing fine, no problem. But it's obvious, you know, you're not getting any younger. That's for sure. And as I say, more and more shoveling. Uh, summertime is no problem. Then when the snow started flying and I had to worry about snow on the roof. I had to hire people to get the snow off the roof and worry about the roof not collapsing and all of that. So, so you ended up, you did hire people because oh, I know that there are some communities where they have organizations that go out and help people because there are so many older people, they want to be able to stay in their own homes till the bitter end. Well, it cost me money, but I was luckily, the guy across the way did work like that. So, and, and then we were pretty friendly. Uh, and so I used to be able to get a hold of him and he come up there and so it would cost me 600 bucks or something like that because he'd bring in two or three guys and they shovel it all off, which was fine. Took the weight off the roof, which is the thing I was concerned about. Of course, then snow boils up so bad and you have a trouble getting the oil guy to bring in the oil. But anyway, shovel that. It's <laughs> so, always something, isn't it? So it was key for you to be able to stay in the house as long as you did to have other people that you could either hire or who were willing to come over and pitch Correct. in and help you. Correct. That made the big difference. Yes. Because I know that there are a lot of communities, as I said, that they're really taking a look at the resources that are available to, to allow people to stay in their own homes. Yeah. And I, so, I've read about that. I haven't actually seen it, but I know it exists in places. You drove up until the day you slipped and hurt your back? Yeah, I, I, I drove until I had to give up my car because when I'm going to assisted living, I'm saying, now we got a problem. Where are you going to park? I had a friend. He was anxious to get the car, so he bought the car. That's why I got rid of the car. <laughs> that was hard for you, though, pretty independent? Yes, yes very much so. And your me. eyesight is still good? Oh, yes, eyesight's good, hearing's good. You're not wearing a hearing aid, are no. you? Wow, how did you luck out? You have really good genes, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Did you have so. any bad habits? Nope, none that I know of, none that I talk about anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, so no, you... No, I never smoked, and that from the very beginning. I, as a kid, I can remember one time trying, I said, I, this don't work. I, I was going to go up play football with a local club. And I said, that's it. And I stopped. I did very little smoking. As a matter of fact, yeah. My daughter, Maureen, one time came in and, and caught me. I had some 
I'll never forget, Newport cig cigarettes. She got them, she cut them all up. <laughs> she was going to stop me from smoking. Was she a kid then? Yes, she was a kid then. How about drinking? I mean, sometimes people have been in the service. Yeah, no, not, never had the, the problem with it the one way or another. So here you are. Yep. Here you are. What's it like for you here? Are you content? Are you happy? How well, would... um, it, things are fine. It, it's, it's somewhat lonely at times. That surprises me. Yeah. You are lonelier here than you used to be living alone? Yes. Why? Well, you can look around and see, well, there's people, cars come in, cars go out, people come and visit other people. It's just, and, and I can't see my kids. Uh, I see Patty every couple of months, and that was it. I don't see the others. Uh, once, I think my son Bill visited me, but that was one time. So it's just that time drags when you're sitting here saying, well, what am I going to do today? Well, I can go down and sit on the porch, or <laughs> I can go in a, in a rocker, or I can take a little walk outside. But you're, you're locked in, pretty much. Are you going to go on the picnic that they're planning today? Yeah, oh, yeah. What would help you? Like, what could happen here that might make you feel less disconnected? Oh, no, it's, it's fine. I just assume not have people just pop in and say, hi, we're here, Happy New Year, or Merry Christmas, or whatever. And no, I'm perfectly content to sit there, and I've got plenty of books to read, and I can do a lot of reading, just sit here and listen to the television or whatever. Would you like to be able to just go out, do whatever you felt like doing? Well, that would be nice, but I realize that's, that's not too possible without having the wheels to do it. What if there was somebody that maybe on a regular basis came in and said, hey, Bill, you want to go to the bowling alley with well, me or something yeah. like that? Talking about Julie here, she does a lot of work setting up trips, just like now this 11 o'clock picnic thing. We go to Hannaford's like twice a month. We'll go to the dollar store maybe once a month or so. The van is available most of the time. You just go down, get on it. For instance, we went out to uh, Wolfboro, New Hampshire here a couple of weeks ago to the uh, World War II Museum out there in Wolfboro. Wonderful trip. I had been there once before. I was pushing to go to there. And we went there, we had a great time. Everybody was very impressed, and, and they want to get back there again, and they're talking about doing it again next year. Sometimes I say, geez, uh, what am I going to do today, or what's going to happen tomorrow, or later today, or something like that. So uh, you have no con control over what may or may not happen. You, you're, you, you're just with the tide, going in and out. So you lose a little bit of control over things. Oh, you do lose a lot of control. It's, Primarily not having wheels, not having like go down and hop in a car and go shopping or go to a movie or whatever. No. And there's really nothing that can prepare you for that. No, there is. It's just like one day you're fine and the next yes, day it changes. Well, it can be a shock. And for instance, you have limited space to, for your clothes. Well, you don't need a lot of clothes, which is fine, but you discover that over time. After you move in, you say, What do I got this for? I don't need a heavy coat. You know, if it's that cold, I'm going to stay in here. 
because they keep this place well lit and well warm and, and it's, they maintain the place fine. What makes it a good day for you? Well, yesterday they hit a violin. You got any advice about being able to manage being older? Well, just live with it the best you can. Do you want to live to be much older? <laughs> well, I thought about it and said, well, uh, I don't know. If I can remain healthy and all of that, and uh, yeah, why not? Is there anything that you wish I had asked you that I didn't, that you think is important? I think you pretty well covered it. We went back to uh, high school mm -hmm. and, and uh, Jersey and all of that. Yeah, yeah I think oh. we covered it pretty well. I've enjoyed this a great deal. Oh, so have I. You've been listening to Conversations About Aging, a Catching Health special series. I'm Diane Atwood, and I've been talking with Bill Salzer, who's 93 years old. If you have anything to say about our conversation or any of my other conversations about aging, please let me know. Something resonated with you? Constructive criticism? You want to recommend someone to be interviewed? Or you'd like to be a podcast sponsor? Whatever. I want this podcast to make a difference in people's lives. If you're listening on a podcast app, write a review. If you're on the Catching Health blog, write a comment or send me an email, diane at dianeatwood.com. You'll find pictures of Bill, a written transcript of our interview, and other conversations about aging at catchinghealth.com. This podcast was made possible by Avita of Stroudwater, a memory care facility, and Stroudwater Lodge, an assisted living community, both in Westbrook, Maine. You'll find out more about them at northbridgecos.com. Many thanks to Smith Atwood Video Services for editing the podcast. See what else they have to offer at smithatwood.com. And a thank you to Tom Muser for his support. He's director of the Center for Excellence in Aging and Health at the University of New England. 